The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew seven fifteen through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, um, you're our God, and we're your children. And so we, we come before you this morning wanting to be taught by you and, and, uh, yeah, and to be made more like uh, your son Jesus, our older brother. So we ask that through the Holy Spirit and through the encouragement of these scriptures, you might give us hope in that direction, and that we might see the fruit of those desires realized in us. Amen. So I wasn't here last week. I was visiting family in Cincinnati. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we were in Revelation 21, um, and, uh, and I hope that while we were there, we were experiencing some element of awe. As I imagined it and tried to portray it, I, I envisioned us being on a field on a high plain, as Bunyan did in Pilgrim's Progress, gazing upon the wonder of the celestial city. We were seeing, as, as John expresses it, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, uh, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We were hearing the promises of God to, to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we are painfully aware that we're not there yet. We see it, but we see it from afar. But we see it. It's certain. It is your future, Christian. But in the meantime, we are here. And so what does life look like here uh, here, our responsibility is, as much as is possible, to live according to the standards of that kingdom which is there. Uh, now, by this, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that we are to try to somehow go out these doors and force the culture around us into some uh, rudimentary facsimile of that kingdom. That's a fool's errand, and many are, 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 are fooled by that idea. Rather, this is the church. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we are called to reflect that kingdom. Broadly, yes, the church across cultures and around the world is to reflect the kingdom of God. But here, you, this congregation, this people, as we live out our lives together, as we live out our lives in our homes, as we live out our lives uh, among uh, our, our, our groups and friends and so forth, we are to live out the reality that we are the bride of Christ, sufficiently so, that when people look at us, they will say they are different. The standards by which they are conforming their lives are different than what we see elsewhere. And the charter for what that looks like, 
what should I say, the paradigm for it, the instructions for it, the framework for it. Uh, what that looks like is in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 to 7. Now, I know those of you who've been around, it may feel like a novelty. Those of you who are, are new and just visiting, we have bounced back and forth between the book of Revelation and Matthew. And someone told me this week that, you know, I'm giving you whiplash. Uh, I understand that. But it's not a novelty. Our moving back and forth is intentional as we admire the beauty of the kingdom and the future that God has laid in front of us. We who are the bride of Christ want to live in that direction, to conform our lives in such a way that we are ready for that kingdom. And that kingdom is, is something of, of great value to us because it is who we are seeking to be. We are to live now as we will live then, both for our own flourishing, the Beatitudes would suggest that, the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, that this is the, this is the place of our flourishing, but also so that the world might see that there is a God among us and perhaps be drawn to a vision of living that is fresh and full of grace and hope. The calling upon us as a church is a high calling. It's a glorious one. Um, as you heard Juliana read to us, uh, the, you know, in, in this vision, we are not bombastic and aggressive, but we're poor in spirit. We're not arrogant and bold but we're to be those who mourn, not self-assertive and independent, but meek, not finding satisfaction in the limited resources of this world, but being those who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of the kingdom, not those who are full of judgment and condemnation, but rather full of mercy, not those contentious, but those who seek to make peace, and not those who clamor for some sense of their own individual rights, but those who are willing to be persecuted for their faith. That is, this Jesus who beckons us to follow him all the way to eternity is a Jesus who challenges us to follow him in wholeness and integrity. And I hope when we get through with this message, you'll understand what that means. But at the very least, know that we all, as God's people, are being called in the direction of this kingdom. And as a part of that, we are being called to embrace leaders who reflect these values. And as such, the first thing we need to note from what Jesus tells us in this text is that believers judge integrity. That's intriguing to me because chapter 7 of Matthew, the, the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And some conclude by that that means, oh, we're not to make judgments of anyone. And of course, that's just a lazy reading of it. What Jesus is saying, apply standards uniformly across the board, but apply them first and foremost to yourself. But here he says, be judges. He's giving you authority and responsibility to make judgments, particularly concerning those who are your leaders. Beware, he says, of false prophets who come, excuse me, come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wood wolves. Prophets are those we listen to, and those we listen to can be those we follow. And Jesus says that these are to be judged very, very carefully. Now, in our case, what that means, of course, is that just because somebody has uh, credentials, just because someone can hang a diploma on his wall, just because somebody can be called doctor or reverend does not put him or her beyond the pale 
of your discernment. You are given the responsibility of making judgments over those to whom you, uh, uh, you know, uh, under whom you place your, your, your life and your care. What's fascinating here to me, though, is the criteria of judgment that is used. Jesus is not here saying, be very careful about those who you put in place as leaders because they might tell you wrong things. Oh, that's addressed elsewhere. Of course that's true. You don't want to submit yourself to somebody who is making stuff up and speaking uh, uh, lies to you. Of course we're to pay attention to what people in leadership say. Paul com commended the Bereans for listening with a critical ear. As, as he put it, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were paying attention to what he said. But as leaders, words are not the most important criteria by which they are to be judged. Rather, they are to be judged by their lives. Jesus speaks of those here in verse 15 who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There is a disconnect between whom they are wanting you to think they are and who they really are. We are to be wary of those whose inner lives and outer practice are divided. You are to seek out leaders who reflect Therefore, integrity. Integrity comes from the word. So this is a very nerdily titled sermon. You know, integers. <laughs> I get excited about that stuff, and that's because, well, that's my character. An integer is a whole number. It's a whole number. One is a whole number. Three is a whole number. One half is not a whole number. It is not an energy, an integer. Those who have integrity are whole numbers. They're not divided. They're not in parts. They are not one person in front of you and one person at home. They're not one person in their public lives and somebody else completely elsewhere. They're not one person on the outside and something rotten on the inside. And we are to flee, Jesus is saying, those who lack integrity. You know, some leaders are pretty good costumers. Um, you know, since I'm already went out on the nerdy limb, uh, you know, the Mission Impossible movies, Tom Cruise puts himself in all kinds of fancy, you know, in, in positions, imitating other people. You've got this fancy machine that you can put on this mask and boom, you know, I could look like Ryan and walk up to you and pretend I'm Ryan because I got this fancy, well, we're kind of different in height, that wouldn't work. But, you know, he puts on this mask and everybody believes this is somebody else, but inside is Tom Cruise. Uh, Jesus knows that skilled, slick, charismatic men and women can deceive others by putting on a good display of being a sheep when their heart knows nothing of the sheep's sensibilities. Beware of those who are divided because that will be discovered. Eventually it will be discovered. Look at verse 16. You will know them, you will recognize them by their fruits. The kind of leader that you are to embrace, the pastors, elders, deacons, and others, are those who bear fruit consistent with being a follower of Jesus Christ. We just had all of these people pledge their commitment to, be, to live as becomes a follower of Christ. The presumption is that that desire that they speak with their lips is something that's going to be reflected in their lives. 
Those are the kinds of leaders you want. Those who reflect the, the spirit of the Beatitudes, which Juliana read to us earlier. Or they are those who bear the Spirit's fruit, as, as Paul um, speaks of it in Galatians chapter 5, uh, and, and which Elizabeth quoted, and I don't dare try to quote, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the, the qualities that qualify a person for leadership, not his or her executive or oratorical skills, which makes me wonder, why do we ignore this? What do we value in America in our ecclesiastical and our church leadership? What do we value? We value success. We value numbers. We value metrics. We value efficiency. We value political conformity. If a church or ministry is growing, if it's showing success, if there are new buildings being built, if there are tons of people being brought in, if the leader's a good speaker, if the finances are good, that leader becomes indispensable. And we overlook the character flaws. Jesus is saying here that if such a person of charismatic skills and, 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 and just remarkable uh, speaking gifts and executive oversight is unkind, he should be removed. Jesus' standards are pretty strict, if you ask me. And there's a couple of things that happen when we forget this. First, known abusers remain in their position. Why? Well, maybe he'll get better. We, can, we can't do without him. Pastors with authoritarian leadership styles keep their jobs. Leaders with caustic and slanderous online presences are honored. That's one thing that happens. We tolerate those who should not be tolerated. But the other thing that happens is that godly pastors, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, who are mourning their sin and seeking godliness, but don't necessarily have all the gifts and skills, are critiqued and judged and eventually driven out of their churches. This shouldn't be. In the past couple of years, a prominent pastor who wrote books on gentleness and had a massive platform was exposed as having an abusive and toxic leadership style. When he confessed it, he, used, he admitted to manipulating facts. I was struck with the fact that he could not even bring himself to say, I've lied to you. No, he manipulated facts. But he was too valuable a brand and too gifted a speaker. And so the inconsistency was tolerated for too long. And yet I've had conversation with two pastors this week, godly men who want nothing more than to love God's people and conform their lives to following Jesus who are under attack because they're not the type of domineering personalities who are able to drive away uh, those who attack them. They're not the charismatic uh, men who are able to ignore the criticism. But they are the people. They are the men that you should want to be your leaders. The degrees on our walls and the words from our mouths are important, but not nearly so important as the consistency between what we profess and how we act. Integrity matters. When you leave here, and go to some other church. Don't make the quality and vibrancy of their youth program or the dynamism of their worship band be your primary 
criteria. Watch the leaders, the pastors, and others. Ask the staff, what, he's, what does he like to work with? Check what the elders are posting online. Make sure that who you see on the outside matches the heart that's on the inside. Jesus says, you'll know them by your, their fruits. So know them. Judge their integrity. Christian, you have a responsibility to do that. But there's a very important corollary then to this, that you yourselves are to nurture integrity. It's not just that the leaders are to possess this kind of consistency between their inner and outward selves, but you are as well. Jesus tells us in, again, verse 15, beware of false prophets. Tells you that once, and then twice he says You'll, you will recognize them by your fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. The spotlight on, is on the leaders because you, Christian, become like those who lead you. Ultimately, Jesus is concerned for you and your own integrity. It is God's purpose to shape us into godly people by placing us around other godly people. Godliness is caught. It's not just taught. You get that? All right? I've heard lots of sermons. I'll say this again. I've heard lots of sermons, and they are valuable in shaping who I am. But I think I am who I am far more because of the people God has put in my lives. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And to that he adds the challenge, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And for us intellectual Presbyterians with our degrees on the walls, it's far too easy for us to interpret that to mean, okay, now I'm going to sit you down and here are the rules that Jesus gives us. I am teaching you to, to, to observe all that Jesus commanded. First do this, second do that, third do that. And it's, you know, that's how it gets read. Um, but how did Jesus teach it? Yes, he spoke it, but he also lived it. He lived it in front of them. And I think we should understand the, this, the, this great commission to teaching them to observe all that I command you by living it out in front of people. So the point is, we learn to follow Jesus by those who are our leaders. We learn integrity from those who have integrity. And the point here is that it matters to Jesus because you matter to him. Jesus wants you to be men and women whose outside and inside match. People should be able to say about you that who you are on the outside, who you are on a Sunday, who is the same as who you are in private. So that means we have work to do. We have work to do. This isn't a weekend project. We go home from church on Sunday and say, oh, okay, you know, Pastor said, I, I need to have this conformity between who I am on the outside, who I am on the inside. All right, I'll take care of that. Check, done. Okay, no. It's a lifetime of work. Eugene Peterson, as you well know, uh, spoke of our Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. And I, I think no better definition could be, uh, be penned. It's a long obedience in the same Christ word direction. You really do need to ask the question whether it's important to you, all right? That's the reason we have that third membership vow, that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ, that you will endeavor by the help of the Holy Spirit to see this matching between who you are on the outside and who you are on the inside. This requires that we build into our lives habits of integrity, 
And I want to suggest just two. We could say we need to be a repentant people, but let's, let's be more specific. Two things I think need to be happening. One is assessment and the other is cultivation. Assessment and cultivation. Um, to assess, uh, let's be people who are continually assessing the gap uh, between who we are on the outside and what we profess you know, and who we are on the inside, who are constantly assessing uh, what we profess with our lips and what our actions show. <coughs> Sorry. When we read something like the Sermon on the Mount or when we hear a sermon, a sermon on it, you know, we're challenged. Uh, we, excuse me. Um, cut it off because I'm <coughs> better. Uh, we don't need to magnify my coughs. But, you know, when, when something comes in front of us from the scriptures or from the pulpit that challenges our behavior, uh, we need to assess that. We need to observe it. We need to be aware of it. You know, and sometimes that's painful. You know, it is really painful. Um, but I've noticed over the years that sometimes orthopedists have to re-break a bone in order to reset it properly. Sometimes we need to see clearly our flaws so that they can be properly addressed. It's painful, it's hard, but it's work that you need to do. Scripture is a mirror. Scripture reveals to us the, the challenge to, to sexual purity. And we need to, when we hear that, we need to ask ourselves, where, where are our eyes going? You know, what are we fantasizing? Um, the scriptures challenge us to honesty. And when, when we hear that, we need to be asking ourselves, you know, am I being truthful in my work? Am I cheating on those exams? When, we, when scripture challenge us, challenges us to gentleness, are we willing to go back over our conversations of the previous week or our posts online to see if, in fact, we've been harsh instead and so on? That is the work we have to do. I can only tell stories on myself in these regards, and so some of these stories are old to some of you, but they're significant to me. There was a time, I've mentioned it before, um, we were back in Bradenton, my kids were young, I lost my temper, and I yelled at them. Uh, and then when I was done with that, was I concerned for the emotional and relational impact that that had had on my children? No. I was more concerned that the windows were wide open than the neighbors might have heard me. I had to face that. You see, that's the lack of integrity. I was more concerned that my outward appearance masked what was really inside me. We need to do that kind of assessment, ongoing, all the time. Others can help, trusted friends, spouses, and so forth, who can lovingly tell us where we're weak, and then we need to listen to what we hear. But we can't stop there. You see, if we stop there, where does that leave us? Oh, man, what a rotten person I am. There is no hope for me, and I don't want to leave us there. We have an opportunity then to take a step away from that, to cultivate the, the, the nature of Christ. Uh, we need, to, in that regard, to, to do what we can to close the gap. When you realize that there's a glaring hole, a significant disconnect between your inner, and outer, your inner self and your outer appearance, we need to take a step away, even if it's a small step, from the concerning behavior and take a step towards Jesus. And we need to do it so often and so frequently and so much for a lifetime that it becomes swift and automatic and gives no foothold to anything that will be a, 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 a long-term uh, trial. Um, 
You know, we're talking about spiritual warfare, really. We're talking about um, battling sin so that we might be like Jesus. Uh, Paul spoke of this as a change of clothes, to take off our sinful behavior, take off the works of the flesh, and put on the clothing of the Holy Spirit, the new, new, new life in Jesus. He speaks of putting one to death and giving life to the other. That's an ongoing thing, an ongoing reality, but keep in mind the goal is always positive. The goal here is to be like Jesus, to live as becomes a follower of Christ. You see, I don't want anyone to leave here and say, well, the the, the heart of the message at Covenant Presbyterian Church is stop sinning. That is not the heart of our message. It is not our desire that you simply stop sinning. Do I want you to stop sinning? Sure, but that's not the heart of our message. The heart of our message is be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. The sinful part of it, putting off, is only part of the picture. The putting on is what we're after. The end result is what we care about. And it's a long obedience. And again, I can only tell stories on myself. I've been praying for over 20 years, probably 40, that I would listen better to Barb. It can be a rather, um, what should I say, a terrible thing to live with a man who always knows he's right. That's why, in therapy, why I'm in therapy. But doesn't Jesus and all of Scripture tell us to be quick to listen and slow to speak? It's funny how in, um, I don't know, I think, I, I only know American culture, but you know, we can joke about, oh yeah, I have a quick temper. That's no big deal. It is a big deal. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, and I'm neither. I pounce. You can ask her. A week or so ago, I was telling Barb how I was right about something and she was wrong. And midway into that, I realized, no, 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 this isn't the way. Now, what do we gain from that? I learn, no, I'm still not fixed. I'm still not whole. (laughs) But what a huge step it was for me to realize in the middle of my awful behavior that I realized I needed to turn elsewhere. This is what I'm saying. This needs to be a lifetime practice where we pray earnestly that the Spirit of God would awaken us to our weaknesses so that more and more we might catch ourselves in them, step away from them, and turn towards Jesus. It's that kind of thing that needs to drive us to be together, to be in the church, to come to the table, to be with other Christians, to apply ourselves to all the means of grace, all of it to the direction of being like Christ. But know this, Jesus desires that of you. It's why he is concerned that you have, not, you have no false prophets in your life. He wants integrity for you because that is how you'll find the greatest joy in living and bring the greatest glory to him. Therefore, believers, judge the integrity in your leaders because that's important for your own nurturing of integrity. But then the most important part is that you need to embrace the integrity of another now, Jesus uses this other image here. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I just, you stop to think about these images, pause and picture it. I mean, Elizabeth helped us by, you know, putting the little sheep costume on the wolf. That's what Jesus is saying. I think the man had a twinkle in his eye. He said, you guys going to go out and pick grapes off that thorn bush? <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. 
But at the same time, I think there was anger in his voice. I think there's, he's, he was angered by leaders who were content to be thorn bushes and to offer fake grapes. He overturns their tables. He speaks woe upon them, not blessing. And so to the degree that any of us are content with a divided self, I do worry. I worry for you if you're aware of the disconnect between your external and internal self, if you're aware of the disconnect between who you are on the outside and on the inside but unconcerned about it, if you need to talk about that with someone, if you need to confess it, seek out an elder, seek out a trusted, mature Christian friend, come to me, let's talk about that. I worry if we tolerate that very long, that we're not Christian at all, that we file, fall under Jesus' final assessment here in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So it's in the name of Christ that I speak that to you. If that is you, genuinely, you have some serious work to do. You may need to come to understand what faith in Christ itself is. You need to flee towards a gracious redeemer, a savior to whom it is never too late to find favor. But there's another group of you. You're aware of the disconnect and it grieves you. You struggle to overcome it and you keep failing. You want to get rid of that gap, but you fear that you're falling under the condemnation of of, of of this verse, chapter 7, verse 19. You want to be like Jesus. You long for that integrity, but you struggle. I'm not concerned for you, and you need not be concerned either. You know why? Because Jesus understands you. What did he say in the Beatitudes, verse 9? Sorry, what verse? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Look, if you're mourning your sin, even if you lose the battle against it more than you win it, that itself is a sign of life. You're alive. You're fighting the weeds, but you're still fighting. You are alive. Christ has given you life. Rejoice in that. And here Jesus is concerned for you here. Keep pursuing the integrity to long for. Do the things that trees do. When they're seeking to bear fruit, they send their roots down more deeply towards the water, into the good soil. And that means sink your roots into the soil that is fertilized by Christ. Place yourself among people who themselves are seeking the life of Christ. And know that Jesus, the Son of God, was the friend of sinners like you. And regarding sinners like you, let me look at this in John chapter 15. You know, what does he say in verse 14 of John 15? Uh, Jesus says uh, this, you are, uh, pardon me, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that's, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. There is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, Jesus says, and he then goes on to say, you are my friends. Now, it seems strange because he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's kind of a rotten excuse for friendship if it's conditional. Look, I'm going to be your friend if you do. No, no. What he is saying is, 
If you see in your life this inclination to move, to move in my direction, you are alive. You are my friends. You are the one who is within this communion. Um, you know, and it is for you that I will die. With all your brokenness and inconsistency, I will die for you. I am your friend. That's the extent of my friendship. And I will take away all the guilt and all the shame of your sin. You will go through this life fighting that conflict, fighting that gap, seeing where you're inconsistent. But nevertheless, your hope is not ultimately in bridging that gap or, or eliminating it. Your hope is in the fact that Jesus' life was fully lived on your behalf. There was no gap. He was fully integrated. He lived in your place and he has died in your place. Embrace, therefore, his integrity and know that he will carry you in your brokenness into the halls of eternity. So Christian, yes, mourn. Mourn your sin, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Seek the holiness that, is, that reflects wholeness. Uh, long for the fruit of the Spirit, even though it's a struggle. Even though it's a struggle, your position before God is already secure and you cannot in any way ever lose that. This heavenly kingdom that we view from afar is yours because Jesus, the man of perfect integrity, has given you that. Believers, judge integrity, nurture integrity, embrace the integrity of Christ. I mentioned Eugene Peterson earlier. As some of you know, he it was a pastor in, in Maryland, and he produced a translation of the Bible, which he wanted to be written in such a way that his, the friends that he saw at the gym could read it and understand it, even though they had no background in the church. Um, that may have been overly ambitious. It does produce some, uh, what should I say, phrasing that feels clunky, but his translation of this text is as near the point as any, so I want you to hear it. This is his translation of these verses. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees with their bad apples are going to be chopped down and burned. That's a commitment to which we need to return we don't need the platformed leaders. We need men and women whom we can conform our lives to because their lives are conformed to Jesus. And this is another story that I've told a hundred million times, but it sticks with me. My friend Tim Rice in Lakeland once told me about his father who was a pastor, and he said, I don't remember one of his sermons. But what I do remember is every time he came to me and said he was sorry and asked for my forgiveness. You see, that's what Peterson sees, and that's what we want to be. What we say, you know, what we do, what, what we say isn't as important as who we are. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say, and the same is true for you. Let's pray together. We're grateful, Father, for your mercy, first of all, to sinners such as are we. But we're grateful as well, Lord, that you love sinners like we, and and that you want us to be conformed more to the image of your Son. Help us in that regard, Lord. Use everything that we do here to shape and move us in that direction. And we pray this in Jesus' Christ, Jesus' name. Amen.